All right, well, this morning we conclude our brief four-part sermon series on the church. Um, I've called it The Dearest Place on Earth, Why the Body of Christ is Essential for Our Faith. And uh, we have looked at various different um, aspects of that theme, which I'm going to review in just a moment. But I, but I hope it's been helpful for some of us. Perhaps it's been like a little bit of an oil change. Uh, for some of us, it may have been maybe a little bit of a tune-up. For some of us, maybe it's been a complete replacement transmission in our whole lives. And wherever we are, I hope that the Lord has used this series to re- reinstate the centrality of the local church in our lives as Christians. Um, in our first sermon several weeks ago, um, I was speaking mainly, but not exclusively, to our regular attenders um, who are not yet members of a local church. And my desire was for the spiritual well-being of those attenders. Perhaps you're even here again this morning. And um, as an attender, and, but not a member of a local church, my desire was for you to be in the fullest place according to God's will and that you would take it upon yourself to prove your faith by your membership in a local church. Um, maybe uh, some of our guests haven't joined our church because they are not yet a Christian, and that is certainly a good reason not to join a church, but it's not a very good condition to remain in. So we encourage you to, even through this sermon, which is going to be very nuts and bolts as far as life in the church, I would encourage you to come to Christ on the front end of this sermon, get baptized, and join a local church. And as pastors, we would love to help you in that process. So if we can help you, please feel free to talk to any of us after the service. Our second sermon dealt with priority, prioritizing the gatherings of the local church. And um, mainly who I had in view here were those of us who are are pretty regular and consistent um, on, on maybe Sundays, but don't necessarily treat the church like a family that we are with regularly beyond those times. So um, I just want to tell those of you who fall in that category that your consistent presence on Sundays is an encouragement to your church family. And thank you for being obedient and making this a point of conviction and importance and priority in your life. And now can I ask, if I haven't already, to consider, in light of this series, taking one more step committing the ministry of your presence to one more place in the life of our body, specifically maybe the Lord's Supper, if you're not regularly in the habit of joining us there, or in our midweek prayer meeting, if you're not, if you're able to join and your work schedules and thing allows you to be there. So when you join the church, you committed yourself to attend morning worship, and you have done that faithfully and even our evening Lord's Supper gatherings. But I just want to implore you, again, to make every effort to add your presence to the life of our body in an ever-increasing way. So if you're in this category, please consider that appeal. Third sermon dealt with um, protecting our faith. This was last week's message to members of HBC who are currently in the habit of not regularly gathering. And just like those in maybe categories one and two, We desire their spiritual well-being as well. We've seen in this series what a dangerous condition it is to be in a place of willful neglect regarding the gatherings of the local church. And as a church body, for the sake of our members' souls, we 
are concerned and we are intentionally trying to cultivate a regathering spirit in our brothers and sisters who find themselves in those places. No doubt COVID has tested our resolve and weakened those gathering muscles. And so we are desirous that our brothers and sisters re-engage in the life of the body. And this will require the formation of new habits um, of gathering in the place of the old ones of not gathering. And so we are desirous that our brothers and sisters make that commitment again and develop that conviction again. Then fourthly and finally, which is what we're going to look at this morning, we want to talk about practicing our faith in the context of the local church. And this sermon really has all of us in view. Um, it, it has in view our regular, consistent uh, members, um, but not just them. It has all of us in view because this passage in Ephesians 4 is about the whole body. It's about everyone in the body doing what everyone in the body is supposed to do in order to build up the body. So, but to our regular and consistent members, those heritage faithful who are steady and consistent in their walk with Christ and in their commitment to the local church, you brothers and sisters comprise the backbone of our congregation. You are tenacious. You are dedicated. You build your lives and schedules around the local church. You care, you love, you serve, and you set an example for us. But may I encourage you with this word in light of what we're going to consider in Ephesians 4 this morning. Your job isn't done because you attend. As members, we have committed ourselves to the spiritual well-being of every other member. And so I ask that you consider reaching out to those who are in your friend group or life stage or whoever and invite them to, with you to come to various gatherings. It takes a village to raise a child, as the old saying goes. It takes a church to raise a Christian. And so let's do this together. This is something we are all called to together. This is what we see in our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen have recently released a book called Rediscover Church, and, um, and I believe I distributed a PDF copy of that to our church membership, so you are welcome to, to dip into that book. If you haven't already, um, I'd encourage you to check it out. In that book, they write the following. Membership, that is membership in a local church, isn't just a status, it's an office or a job, and you're expected to show up for work. Lehman goes on, think back to God's command to Adam in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Then think of Adam's, of God's command in Genesis 2 for Adam to work and keep the garden. So Adam's job as king was to subdue and rule over new territory. Adam's job as priest was to keep the garden where God dwells holy. Of course, Adam failed at his job. He let the serpent inside, and Noah, Abraham, and the nation of Israel failed too. Christ then came and perfectly fulfilled the job of priest and king, and then assigned us the job of being priest kings too. 1 Peter 2.9, you are, that is the church, a royal priesthood. Here's what's remarkable, Lehman says. Your job as a church member is Adam's original job only it's a new covenant version of it given to you by Christ. We're to push out the borders of the garden like kings 
while simultaneously watching over the garden like priests. As kings, we strive to make disciples and be ambassadors of reconciliation. Our goal is to bring more hearts into subjection to God, more of the earth under the gospel's dominion. And then Lehman concludes this theological point with a note of application to us as church members. He says, the big takeaway for you is that church membership is not a passive thing. It's not just a status. It's not like membership in a country club, a shopper's club, or a gas station rewards program. It's a job where you go to work. You need to get job training. You need to engage it with your mind and heart. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Ephesians 4 is all about. We are going to work, and we are getting job training. So that's what we see in Ephesians 4. How does God intend for us to go to work, and how does he intend for us to get job training? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, describes for us what Jesus is doing now. Having come to earth, taken upon himself, the eternal Son of God, having taken upon himself true humanity, He lived a perfect life in our place. He died for our sins. He rose victoriously from the grave on the third day. He sent his spirit to the disciples, the apostles, who went out and planted churches, and then he ascended back into heaven. Now, what's he doing now that he has ascended into heaven? Well, Ephesians 4, 11 and following tell us exactly what he's doing. He's ascended into heaven and is gifting the church for mission and unity, by supplying the church with pastors and teachers who equip the saints for ministry so that the whole body, the whole church family can be built up into maturity. That is what Jesus is doing right now in our own church community and all over the world. Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how he's doing that, let's just recognize first the glorious goal that we're all working for together. You know, so often as you get into the nuts and bolts of things and you start talking about what this looks like, we can just get lost in all the commands and the obligations. And it's so important when we are trying to motivate ourselves to engage God's commands that we do so with the reality that behind those commands is a great big why that is hugely important and hugely meaningful and hugely significant, right? It's so awful when we have to go through life and we feel like our work doesn't matter and that we don't, that that we're not engaging life the way that's, that's meaningful and producing anything out of it. We're just kind of spinning our wheels. I mean, that's a frustrating, terrible, difficult way to live. And what Paul doesn't want us to behave that way He wants us to understand this massive, glorious goal that is behind all of our day-to-day church life. What is that goal? Look at verse 13 as Paul describes this glorious goal. He says, until, so we're going to do all this work we're going to talk about today, until we all attain. Isn't that good news? We're all going to get there, brothers and sisters. We're going to get there. We're going to attain it. It's not in vain. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. God is going to bless this until we all attain what? To the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then in verses 14, he talks about now that we're mature, we are not behaving like children anymore. So the vision is one of robust Christ-like maturity 
in our thinking and our living. That's where we're headed. That's why we're working. That's what this is all about. The spiritual maturity of the entire body of Christ. So, how does this happen? Well, two ways. A supply line and a front line. There's a supply line that Jesus, as the great ascended giver, gives to the church, and there's a front line that is equipped to do that work. So we're going to look, first of all, at the supply line, which are pastors and teachers, and second of all, front line, which are church members. So let's look at each of these one at a time. First of all, the supply line. Number one, our job as pastors is to equip you by teaching an example to serve Christ by building up his church. Our job as pastors is to equip you by teaching an example to serve Christ by building up his church. Notice verse 11 where Paul spells this out clearly. He gave, that is Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. I think what the reason why he quotes all of those is because they all share this teaching function in common. And um, he's, he's laying out the apostles taught, the prophets taught, the evangelists taught, the shepherds and the, and, and teach, who are teachers teach. For the purpose, verse 12, to equip the saints. So your ability as a church member to do your job as a church member depends on pastors as church members doing our job as church members. Because pastors are church members too. I think that's why Paul points out that we are all in this together right? It's not like there's this hierarchy, although there's obviously respect and, uh, you know, honor given to pastors and leaders, and you all do a great job of that. But, but the point is, is that there's this, we're working on this together. We might have slightly different tasks, and in fact, as we're going to see this morning, the tasks aren't all that different. They're, they're very similar, and they overlap in a lot of different ways. But the job of the elders, according to this verse, are pastors or shepherds or bishops or whatever different words we use to describe spiritual leadership in the New Testament. The apostle tells us that Jesus has given a number of gifts to his church, including pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So to put it simply, the pastor's job is to equip the saints to do their job. Pastors don't do all the work for the congregation, but we equip the saints to minister to one another in the congregation. So pastors do ministry not for the church, although that's partly true, but also mainly with the church. So we're both in ministry. We have slightly different spheres, but we're all in ministry seeking to build up the body of Christ. Now, how does the pastor do this? Well, according to scripture, and we're going to get into these two in just a moment, it's a combination of the words we speak and the lives we live. The words we speak and the lives we live. We encounter this formula in Paul's instruction to Timothy, who was a church leader, in 1 Timothy 4.16, where we read the following. Paul writes to Timothy saying, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's saying, keep watch on your life, because your life is to serve as an example. He tells Timothy that in 1 Timothy as well. He says, set an example for the believers. 
But he also says to keep a close watch on the teaching and to persist in both of these things. Keep a close watch on your soul. Keep a close watch on your content. Keep a close watch on your mouth. Keep a close watch on your heart. Keep a close watch on what comes out of here and also what comes out of here. So we got to keep a close watch on ourselves and on our teaching because Paul says that by doing this, we'll save ourselves and we'll save our hearers. So let's look at each one of those teaching and modeling as the key parts of the pastor's job descriptions. Let's take teaching first. One of the main things that sets pastors apart in the New Testament from members is that they must have the ability to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now that doesn't mean that every pastor or every elder has to occupy a pulpit or stand in front of a congregation or publicly preach. The ability to teach means that if you're struggling to understand the Bible or how to handle a tough life situation, you know you can stop by this guy's house or give this guy a phone call and ask him for help and you'll at least get a biblical answer. You may not get every answer, but you'll at least get a biblical answer. And that's what it means to be able to teach. That's all it means. Taking the Bible, helping it to, to apply it to the life of the congregation. It means having a firm grasp on biblical doctrine and being able to apply that faithfully to the hearts and lives of God's people. That's teaching. The second thing that Paul says, not so much in this passage, but I think is an implication of this passage based on 1 Timothy 4 and other passages we're going to look at in just a second, is modeling, setting an example. See, elders don't only teach. According to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 2, talks about the ability to teach, and that is the only skill that is described in elder qualifications within 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The rest are all character qualifications. The rest are all, how is this person? Who is this person? So elders not only teach, but we model. This is what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when he says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And he says, being examples to the flock. Paul repeatedly called the church to imitate him in as much as he was imitating Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Notice, Paul is teaching, but he's also modeling. And he's reminding that he does this in every church that he goes to. So that's our responsibility as pastors, to teach God's word and to model a godly life and pray for us as we seek to be faithful in discharging that responsibility for the sake of building up the body of Christ. Secondly, the front line. The front line. Your job as members is to follow the teaching and example of your pastors and serve Christ by building up the church. Again, look at verse 12. To equip the saints, that is the pastors are through their teaching and by implication their modeling, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we're all doing ministry. The pastor's ministry is equipping the saints for ministry, and the saints' ministry is exercising the ministry for which they've been equipped. Okay? 
we'll get into some details about that because I know that's still in the, in the abstract. Okay, we'll get there eventually. But I, help, I want to help you understand that that's the apostolic Christ-given desire and will for which he gives pastors and churches is so that through those churches, the saints would be brought to maturity. So what is our job as members then in relation to our elders? This is interesting because every elder's got elders, right? I'm a member of Heritage Baptist Church. I have elders too, right? So we all have this responsibility, and that is Hebrews 13, 7. And notice how the teaching and modeling is brought in here. The writer of the Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. There's teaching. Consider the outcome of their way of life. There's modeling. And imitate their faith. Okay, so again, this is central to the way the New Testament thinks of what pastors are to do and what church members are to learn from their pastors. It's a mark, remarkably similar to what we've already seen. Just as your pastor's job is to teach you the word of God and set an example for you, the writer to the Hebrews calls you to remember what they have said and to consider how they lived and imitate their faith. So if the pastors are called to teach you the word of God and set an example for you, what would be the job description of members? And we shouldn't be surprised that Ephesians 4 gives us a speaking role and a representing role, a living role, what we say and how we live. So let's get into that. These are the specifics of the member's job description. Just as the pastor was teaching and modeling, so the member is speaking and working. Speaking and working. Those are the verbs that Paul uses for members in this passage, and we're going to look at them one at a time. First of all, speaking. Look at verse 15. Paul has just talked about verse 11. Christ gave gifts of pastors and teachers. For what reason? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To what end? To bring us all to maturity so that we won't be like children. Verse 14, rather, here's the opposite. Verse 15, and here's how it gets done. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow. So the first thing Paul says that we are responsible to do as members is to speak the truth in love. So the manner in which we are to speak is love. The content we are to speak is truth. Now, those are huge words that cover a lot of biblical ground, right? Like truth and love, good grief. I mean, what does that mean? Doesn't that cover like everything? Well, again, let's just be sensitive to the context here and think about what Paul might have in mind as he talks about truth and love, okay? So just look back. Let's just walk it back, okay? We're just going to walk back through the previous verses and see if we can get a handle on what Paul means by truth and love here. First of all, I think if you look back at verse 13, we get a definition of truth, what truth he's talking about that we're to speak. He says, we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And here's what the work of ministry is. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So truth is doctrine, teaching about who Jesus is and what it means to be his follower. That's the truth we're talking about. The truth as it is in Jesus the truth of who the Son of God is, knowledge about the Son of God, in order that we can help each other know Jesus better and live for Jesus 
more faithfully. So that is what we're talking about. That's the language that Paul uses. He's like, what brings people to maturity? Knowledge of the Son of God applied to their lives. So what we're talking about here is helping each other through the Word of God know Jesus better, and we speak that in love to one another. That's what speaking the truth in love, I think, mainly means, although it probably has a more expansive idea than even that. But contextually, I think we can say it at least means that much. We're speaking the truth about Jesus to one another, and that includes all of Scripture because all of Scripture is about Him, and we bring that to bear on each other's lives in love so that we would grow up into maturity. I think Paul summarizes this very helpfully in his letter to the Colossians. If you'll just hold your finger in Ephesians 4, we're coming right back. Turn about four or five pages over in your Bible to the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1. I love this summary of Paul's ministry. It's so helpful because he just gives us his mission statement. Like, what is his life all about? What, Paul's doing a hundred different things. He's planting churches. He's writing letters. He's teaching. He's moving around. But what's the main thing? What's guiding it all? Well, verse 29 of chapter 1 is guiding it all. Him we proclaim. We could say speaking the truth in love. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See that? So he's proclaiming Christ the knowledge of the Son of God in order to bring everybody to maturity in Him. And He does it by both warning. Sometimes we've got to say hard things to each other. And sometimes we say instructive things to each other. There's a positive and a negative. There's the warning and there's the teaching. There's the, hey, stop doing this. Hey, start doing this. Right? Stop doing that. That doesn't help you know or follow Jesus. Start doing this. This will help you know and follow Jesus better. That's what we do for one another in the body of Christ. That's the essence of ministry according to the Apostle Paul. It's what he did, and it's what he's equipping the churches, both at Col- the Colossians and the Ephesians, to do themselves. Unless we think this is only the responsibility of the Apostle Paul, look at chapter 3, verse 16, where he uses the exact... This is Colossians 3, verse 16, where he uses the exact same words to describe what we are supposed to do with one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, same words that he uses in chapter 1, verse 29, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Same phrase. We do that through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, and we do it in other ways as well, but that's the first one he pulls out. So, this speaking then, this knowing Christ and helping each other know Christ better helps the church to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Right? Doesn't that make sense? If Christ is the head... What's the body's job? To help the body grow up into the head. How does the body grow up into the head? By becoming more of what the head is. The head is Christ. He wants to look down. Christ is the head, wants to look down at his body and say, yeah, that looks like me. He doesn't want to look down at his body and say, what happened to me? You know, he wants, it, he wants the body to grow into maturity. And the body he's speaking of here is the local church at Ephesus, Right? and all the local churches. It would be very hard to do this if Paul was just talking about the the universal church. He's talking to the church at Ephesus, members of that church at Ephesus, and what their responsibilities are to one another. So the plain answer to how we grow into Christ, how we become 
more like Christ, and according to Paul's language, take on a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's, that's hope-giving, right? He says, a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He knows we won't be fully glorified in this life. He knows that, not every, that we won't be absolutely perfect, but that is not to stop us from striving to grow in every way into a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's his appeal to the church. So we speak the truth in love, and that is how the body builds itself up. So what are the implications of that for us as members? Well, we need to know Jesus and grow in our knowledge of Jesus and also be able to share him with each other, to to help each other with our own walk with Jesus. So every church member has a speaking role, and this is why we take theological training so important in the life of our church while we're, while we're starting um, a new theological Sunday school uh, even in two weeks. It's September 1, starting, in, and Pastor Keith's doing it every week by orienting, orienting us to Jesus in the Bible so that we get equipped for how to handle the Bible in a Christ-centered way so that we can help one another when we uh, need to. And so w- what the implication is is we need to do all we can to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God because it's to that, it's to that degree that we will be helpful in building up the body and only to that degree. Our church doesn't need your great personality, your smooth people skills, your uh, entertaining disposition, your funny humor, all that's cool. We like it all. But what's mainly we need from each other is Christ. We need Christ from you. You need Christ from me. I need Christ from all of you. So as we press into Christ, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, as we dispense that knowledge to each other by sharing what Christ is teaching us, how we're growing in Christ, we can build up the body as well. So just to be clear, it doesn't mean that every church member is called to teach like a pastor teaches. That's not what we're talking about. It means that every church member, as we saw last week, has the responsibility to spiritually encourage other church members by pointing them to Jesus. That's our job. That's our responsibility. That's what every member in our church needs to ask continually. Am I encouraging? Am I being a spiritual encouragement? Who have I built up in Christ recently? We do that, yes, by serving one another. But notice the main way is speaking. We say things to each other that build each other up in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. So it's hard to get to know that the rest of your church family and have the freedom to do that if you're not together a lot, right? How many of you have your deepest, most intimate conversations with that guy who comes to the family reunion once a decade? Say, I don't even remember his name. So the implication of this is that if we're going to do this, we've got to be together. We've got to get to know each other. We have to be friends, not just family, but we have to welcome that input. And the way we welcome that input is by building trust with one another over time. And the way we build trust over time is by being together a lot by regularly interacting inside and outside gatherings of the church. It's hard for me to be led by those God has placed over me if I only show up occasionally. So the most fundamental way in which we express this desire to build up the body of Christ is just by being there, right? And in all of our gatherings, as we are there, our intention should always be to speak to one another, 
We speak to each other in our services, don't we? Right? We do. Singing to one another. Josh reminded us this morning. Singing to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are speaking. We are speaking to one another. We are speaking to one another. And then when the time comes for us to receive the word of God, we are receiving the word of God. God is speaking to us, but we're, hey, we're all listening to this together. We are all taking this in together. And then after services, before services, in between services, during the week, we speak to one another. We check on one another. We express interest in one another. We pray for one another. We speak truth to one another. This is all beautiful. This is all essential. Now, let me bend this nail over in a particular way that I think we as a congregation could grow in this area. Now, there are many, many examples I could give of ways that we are, we are excelling by God's grace in this area. There is much spiritual dialogue. There is much intentional encouragement. There is much thoughtful prayer. There is much word-based interaction. We can grow in that, of course, but it is very present by God's Spirit in the life of our congregation, and I'm immensely thankful for it. But here's one way I would like to see it grow. Just as we as pastors observe before and after gatherings and things like that, we typically see, although not exclusively, people gather in age groups that are similar to their own. All right, so older folks interact with older folks, younger folks interact with younger folks, you know, us middle guys and girls, both sides sometimes, we don't know where we fit anymore. So, but, 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 but that's, that's natural, that's human nature. We, we gravitate toward people who are in the, the same life sphere and life, life stage as us, and that's totally fine. But for the sake of building up the body of Christ and bringing it to maturity, that alone will not cut it. It won't cut it. Lifeway did a study. Now, we don't base all of our church practices on what Lifeway does, but Lifeway did this study, and it was interesting and revelatory, I think, to what the Bible teaches and encourages us to do. Lifeway uh, did a cumulative and extensive research project yesterday analyzing why young adults, and they charted this over many, many years, why young adults who grew up in the church remained in the church when others stopped. What was the difference? Why did some young adults continue on with the church? Why did some adults neglect gathering with the church after they left home? Well, one of the two biggest, one of the takeaways was obvious. Another of the takeaways was less obvious. Say, what were those takeaways? Glad you asked. I'll give them to you now. The first and major, most obvious reason was consistent personal Bible reading and prayer on the part of the young adult. They were devoted to Jesus themselves. Didn't have to pressure them to read the Bible. Didn't have to remind them to read the Bible. They read the Bible. It was a part of their own life, and they did it because they were personally walking with Jesus. That's a no-brainer. When a young adult demonstrates consistency, unprovoked by external pressure from parents or pastors, it demonstrates a real personal relationship with Christ that is not propped up by other people or environmental circumstances. It shows that it's a genuine article. It shouldn't surprise us then that those young adults continue to walk with Christ since their personal devotion is already real to begin with. It's marked by a real and living faith. Nobody's forcing them, nobody's twisting their arms, nobody's punishing them, nobody's having to remind them they're doing it on their own. So young adults, if you want to continue in the faith, especially teens, and make personal devotion your aim, personal Bible reading, personal prayer, interact with Jesus for yourself. Don't always have it mediated through your teachers or your pastors or your church, although that's great too. We need both. 
The second major reason identified in the study was slightly more surprising, and I, I admit I was surprised too. And that is, there was an undeniable correlation between the investment of Christian adults beyond the youth's parents into the lives of the youth and their likelihood to remain engaged in the church. The more adults who invested in an individual student's life, the less likely the student is to walk away from church after graduation. These kinds of genuine relationships where young adults can see Christians cling to Jesus in the midst of real-life situations, the good and the bad, create the kind of culture that they want to be a part of. And this is where they can learn how the gospel speaks truth into every part of their lives. So this, I think, is one way we can grow in speaking to one another as a body, speaking the truth on one another. Because notice, Paul doesn't qualify it in Ephesians 4 as to who we're to speak to. He says the whole body should make an effort to speak to the whole body, right? Now, that doesn't mean every member is responsible to speak to every single member. You can, you can imagine that being in a conversation with a member saying, wait, I talked to you last week. I've got to go find somebody else. We're not talking about that kind of robotic, artificial kind of thing. We're talking about where we try to widen our spheres, all of us, widen our spheres so that intergenerational friendships, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, can begin to form. And what I mean by an intergenerational friendship is where there's a 15-year age difference or more between the two people who are regularly interacting. This is a burden not because statistics results alone, but because the Bible commands it in Titus 2. Older, younger, older, younger, younger, older, older, younger. It's one of the ways that the church puts on display the supernatural character of its origin. That when people come among us, they don't just see cliques. They see a family in which people are interacting with people from all over the spectrum, the age spectrum. So younger brother or sister in Christ, how many close friends in our church do you have that are 30 years older than you? Older brother or sister in Christ, how many close friends do you have that are 30 years younger than you? We often self-segregate by age group, which requires that we make a concerted effort to seek out those who are younger or older for fellowship. So let's all be committed to make the first move. Let's start small. Here's a recommendation. Come to the midweek meal and chat with someone from a different generation and do it for four weeks in a row. Just There's a regular time where you can sit around and hang out and talk to people. And you just sit down, talk to them, and do that over the course of several weeks and see what God does. We have a meal, fellowship meal next Sunday. Sit with some different people. Don't sit with your same people all the time. Sit with some different people. Sit with some people from a different generation. And see what God does. Linger. Pursue conversations outside of your age and your peer group. You, have, you, you don't have to have anything in common. You have Jesus in common. We have Heritage Baptist Church in common. We got our whole life in common. You know, the, ma- the major things, that is. If nothing else, every Christian can stand beside every other Christian, no matter what the age, and say, hey, you know Jesus too, tell me about that. You know Jesus too, tell me about that. What has the Lord been teaching you lately? What have you been learning from him? All right, that's speaking. We're going to move quickly through working. This is the second one, working. Uh, In order to grow, notice what Paul says in verse 16 must happen. The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So the whole body is needed. The, to, this counted, this, this could not be more clear as it's emphasized no less than three times in verse 16. 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, when each part is working, builds the body up. (laughs) Whole every each. Paul is saying everyone's in. This is all required for the body to grow. No one's on the bench. Everyone's in the game. Because God grants to all of his people gifts for serving the body, as he says in verse 7, each part of the body has work to do. We all participate in the project of building up the body in love. Paul doesn't tell pastors how to establish programs and instruct them in how to franchise problems out to other pastors. Instead, Paul encourages church members to do the ministry the pastors are equipping them to do. Service doesn't belong exclusively to deacons. Galatians 5.13, members are to serve one another. Pastors aren't the only ones who speak. Members in Romans 15.14 are to instruct one another. The music team isn't the only one who's blessing others with musical praise. Members, according to Colossians 3, are to sing to one another. Certified counselors aren't the only ones who help people with life's problems. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says members encourage one another. So what causes the growth of the body? The body. The body, given and empowered by the Spirit of God, helps the body grow when each part is working properly. Now, I think that word work is a good word because it implies there's effort. It's intentional. It's hard sometimes. It requires sacrifice. That's what work conveys, right? But it's also rewarding. It's also purposeful. It's also glorious. So all members have gifts, and all those gifts are to be used in building up the body in love. Not just speaking, but working. And this work includes the things that are mentioned in the rest of the book of Ephesians. Like chapter 4, putting away slander and falsehood and speaking truth from the heart to each other. Working hard at our jobs, like Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6 says. Putting to death stinginess and sharing what we have with others, Ephesians 4.28 refraining from dirty jokes and profanity and other corrupting talk, according to Ephesians 4.29 and 5.4, being kind to one another and forgiving each other, Ephesians 4.32, avoiding being deceived by false doctrine, Ephesians 5.6, loving our wives and submitting to our husbands, Ephesians 5.22-33, raising our children in a way that honors the Lord, Ephesians 6.4, treating our employees equitably and justly, Ephesians 6.9. That's all real ministry. And that's what we help one another do. We help one another not lie, not deceive. We help one another put off lust. We help one another speak kindness. We help one another forgive each other. We help one another not be deceived by false doctrine. We help one another love our wives and our husbands. We help one another raise our children. We help one another work our jobs. That's all the church's responsibility to each other. One pastor helpfully summarized it this way. Real ministry looks like two young moms putting aside rivalry in comparison to love and serve one another. It looks like a young man refusing to tell a dirty joke for a cheap laugh and instead choosing words that build up. It looks like cheerfully punching numbers into a spreadsheet from 9 to 5 as an act of devotion to the Lord. It looks like a man laboring to help his wife spiritually thrive even as he overlooks her unfair criticism. It looks like a wife choosing to honor her husband even when given the opportunity to speak disrespectfully about him. It looks like inviting members to a meal after church, sharing the gospel with a neighbor, or sending an email to a discouraged brother. That's all ministry is. It's all ministry. Now, let me conclude by talking about two ways that this particular vision of ministry uh, confronts some ways we typically think about ministry in America, specifically in American churches. 
First of all, this vision of the local church confronts our sensationalism, doesn't it? Many Christians are stuck on the dramatic. We get excited about huge conferences, someone else's pastor, the latest internet controversy. Thrill seekers simply don't find life in a local church stimulating enough to really get involved and stay involved. None of these actions described in Ephesians look glamorous. But for, all, for Paul, these are all real ministry. Caring for the elderly in the local church, restoring a wayward member, helping the single mom, serving in child care. These things don't usually excite sensationalists. That's boring. But while these acts may not be sensational in people's eyes, they would turn the world upside down if we began to live them out. What's more, the endless search for something bigger and greater and more extraordinary is exhausting our culture. We need a renewal of Christians who are wholly committed to living out basic Christianity in their faith families. Also, this vision of the local church confronts our idealism. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, Life Together, he talks about the problem of having a wish dream when it comes to the church. Bonhoeffer explains how idealism is the enemy of true community. He says, he who loves his dream of community, that is, oh, his thoughts of a perfect church, more than the community itself, becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Wish dreams destroy community. We love the one we're with, right? But this text is utterly realistic. Ephesians 4 is utterly realistic about what life in the church is like. The body needs a lot of work done on it. <laughs> that's, that's the vision. Every, everybody's needed because there's a whole lot of work to get done. We are all in need of so much work, right? We all need each other to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Isn't that remarkable? If we let that vision shape us, it will help us from becoming discouraged when we realize how imperfect the church is. Of course the church is imperfect. It's, it's imperfect in part because it's full of us. That's why it's imperfect. And we're all imperfect and we need all, each other, all of each other to grow. Now, let me conclude because we need to wrap up. I want to conclude with a word of encouragement because I know this, uh, this series has been heavy on uh, kind of exhortation, correcting, thinking through areas we can improve. I hope we all are leaving with some practical takeaways. That's my goal. That's my burden. That's my heart. But I want to remind us of this, and I want to close, close with another quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I wanted to, uh, Pastor Thad, I'm so glad you reminded us of this in your prayer. Pastor Thad's always models for us how, how we are to be thankful for the body of Christ. And I was struck, even as I was reading this quote this week, about our pastor's consistent example in that. Bonhoeffer says, It's by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in other lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. 
Let's never forget that, brothers and sisters. Let's never forget what an amazing privilege it is to be a local church together. May the Lord never find us despising such a gift from his gracious, gracious hands. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to you for your word that teaches us, instructs us, corrects us, and points us forward to Christ. Help us all as members to take our responsibilities seriously. This is a job. This is a calling. This is a work we've been given to build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth in love, by working according to our gifts so that the whole body might be brought to maturity. And help us as pastors to be faithful to discharge our jobs of equipping the saints for the work of ministry through teaching, through modeling, through help as we all strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, seeking to build up the body of Christ until we don't have to do that anymore (laughs) and we all attain unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Thank you that that day is coming. Thank you that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Motivate us by your grace to excel in this still more. We ask in the mighty name of our ascended, risen King and gift giver, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.